time and time again, Paul comes back to the cross work of Christ as the basis for all of his teaching. He said at the beginning of this letter, well-known statements, we determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. We preach Christ and Him crucified. That's what he always did because Christ, or the Apostle Paul was a man who was utterly infatuated and in love with the Lord Jesus. And when we read the way that the Apostle makes arguments and the way that the Apostle reasons and deals very often, we, we note this reality and we, we wish that we had that kind of love for our Savior. We wish that when we were in the, the crucible of argumentation or debate or, or pressure from the world, we wish that our minds would go to Christ and His cross as quickly as it seems like the apostles did. We, we, we wish, and we even maybe pray prayers like this, that, that we would love Christ more. We, we know that our love for Christ is not what it should be. We wish we loved Him more. And sometimes when we recognize that, we don't love Christ as we should, we, we begin to even doubt our own salvation. Maybe I'm not even a Christian. I don't love Him as I should. I just wish that I could love Him the way I should. I must not even be a Christian. You realize how absurd that kind of thinking is? I must not be a Christian. I wish I loved Christ more. Lost people don't think that way. Unregenerate people don't care how much they love Christ. They care about how much they can perform, how much they do outwardly, what other people think of them. But it is a Christian who can look at the Scriptures and say, I wish I loved Christ the way the Apostle loved Christ. I wish I loved Him more. And we have to grow. Love is a grace. Love is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It has to be nurtured and, and fed and, and fanned into flame throughout our lives where by the end of our lifetime, we will love Christ more than we do now. But we have to aspire. We have to aim after that. And when we see the way that the Apostle reasons with the Corinthians, we ought to see that, but not... Don't let it trip us up and, and beat us down into the ground. Let it spur us on that there is a love for Christ that, that we can uh, obtain and grow in and fan into flame. He always comes back to the cross of Christ and that's what he's been doing here in the church of Corinth. He, he's trying to urge upon them the responsibility that they have to exercise discipline in the church. To We wanted to give this overall statement to care for the church, to watch out for it by removing this sinful brother. And he said, as we saw last week, that they need to do this because of what they are. He said, you are unleavened. You are a cleansed, washed people. Not, not perfect, not with, completely without sin. When we hear the word perfect, we think no blemish whatsoever. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying you're, you're different in the world. You've been called out. You, you have been objectively cleansed. And then we, if we were to ask the apostle, how did the church come to have this cleansing, this washing? Well, it's because of the work of Christ. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
The blood of the Lamb has been spilt. The blood has been applied. You've been set free from the bondage of sin. Death has passed over you. And the death angel doesn't, doesn't have a, a cul-de-sac where he turns around and comes back through later. He doesn't, he's not like the mailman you see go down the road and then come back later. No, once, the, once that death has passed over you because of the blood of Christ, it's passed over forever. There's no more fear that He might come back later when we're not thinking or we're not paying attention or maybe when we're sleeping as those firstborn sons, uh, many of them probably were. And He might get you in that moment. No, once death has passed over because of our Passover lamb, death has passed. It's gone. We've been set free because of what Jesus Christ has done. But what we saw last week in closing was that that work of Christ does not excuse sin. That the Christian is never allowed to say, well, because Christ has died and because the blood has been applied and because death has passed over my situation, therefore I can live as I please. That's not the way a Christian thinks. Rather, the work of Christ urges the removal of sin. And that ought to be our thinking. In a moment of temptation or even when we look back, we, we, we miss the moment and we can look back a, 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 the blink of an eye later and say, I just sinned. Our thinking ought to be the cross. What has Christ done? And in the moment of temptation, when it's presenting itself, our minds ought to go to the cross. Not to justify, well, Christ has died, I might as well. No, Christ has died. Picture Him hanging on the cross. Could you sin there at the foot of the cross? No. Christ's work urges the removal of sin, the abstinence from sin. We saw that this ought to produce a, a particular culture among the saints where we are cleansing out the leaven, where our lifestyle is one where we're constantly putting away sin. And one application of that in, in this chapter is in the life of the church. A church needs to be cleansing itself of leaven in its midst. But we also have to keep in mind that those who make up the church are also citizens of this world. So we are citizens of what we could, we could say two kingdoms. Two, we have dual citizenship. And so what does it look like for those of us who are in the church as a part of the church, to be cleansing sin out of the church, but also members and citizens of this world. Well, in, in verses 9 to 13, Paul comes back to the issue of the sin that's in the church, but now he's going to give some specific rules by which we must conduct ourselves as the saints of God in the world. We have to balance this, and this is a part of the difficulty of the Christian life. We have to balance. We don't get to just come to church and be around our Christian brothers and sisters all the time. Someday, we will. Not yet. So there has to be this balance. We have to recognize that this is a hard work. Some of you have seen uh, people perform these balancing acts at the, at the circus. Or maybe you've seen a video where people have walked across a, a tightrope across the Grand Canyon or something. And you can see that they are working. They're, they're holding that, that pole to keep them balanced. Their, their, their muscles are no doubt tense and, and they're using everything in their body to balance them. Well, that's, that's a, kind of how the Christian life is. There's hard work involved in balancing who we are and what we are as a church with the fact that we also have to live in a fallen world where the broad majority of the people that we come in contact with are not a part of that work. They're not trying to balance 
and they don't care if they knock you off balance. They don't care if you fall, but you do. So Paul gives us some, some rules here. The first one is, in verses 9 and 10, rules for civil association. Rules for civil association. And in these verses, Paul has to make a clarification based on what he had written in a previous letter. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Now it's important that we understand how Paul is using this word associate. The word means literally mix together. I wrote to you in my letter not to mix together with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Now when we read it just like that, the implication seems to be, well, it must be perfectly acceptable then to mix together with worldly immoral people. But we have to also keep in mind the whole context of what Paul's saying here in this chapter. The context, remember, is the church and the duty of the church. Remember that Paul is assuming a community of people with definable boundaries, rules, and obligations. When he says, I wrote to you, it's, he's talking about the church. I wrote to y'all as a body these things. That's, that's the context in which this statement is being made. And the term associate has to be understood in that context. To mix together in a church context is very different than it would be in other contexts. And we could almost say, Paul's saying that we don't need to mix together our mix, mixing together. There, there are associations in the world, or in, there are ways in which we do mix with them. And there are ways that we mix together in the church. Those two mixings are not to mix, if that, if that makes sense. And, and I'll, I'll explain that hopefully as we go along. There is an association amongst those in the church, and there's an association amongst those in the world. We're members of both. We have to balance both. Rule number one for civil association, when it comes to the association that is exclusive to the church, and that's what we call church membership. It, it brings its own privileges. It brings its own liabilities. Church membership means some things, but it also doesn't mean a lot of things. That kind of association is not to be extended to the worldly immoral or the immoral of this world. But the second rule is when it comes to associations that are connected with day-to-day -day life in a fallen world, which are not the same, they're not nearly as intimate as they are with our brothers and sisters in Christ. There is an association, but it's different. When it comes to that type of association, in that context, he's, he's basically saying that's inevitable. That's expected. Because you can't leave the world. You can't go out of the world. It's not possible. The individual Christian as that Christian is considered a citizen of this world, has to manage those associations also. It's not really those associations that he has in mind here. He's talking about the church, but we can, we can think through those because it's important. 
from Paul's clarification here, we can deduce that a Christian may and indeed cannot avoid regular social intercourse in this fallen world with known sinners. A Christian may and indeed cannot avoid that type of association with sinners in a fallen world. Why is that the case? Well, all men are born sinners, right? Genesis 6-5 says that every intention of the thoughts of the hearts of men are only evil continually. The nature of every man is ruined by sin before he's even born. Therefore, the whole world of people consists of sinners. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. If, if you want to interact with that man who does good and never sins, it's not going to be on this planet. That There was only one of those, and he's no longer on this planet in physical flesh. And so any interaction that we have is going to be with sinners. This interaction that we're having right now is in an interaction between sinners. It is a, a, a congregation of sinners watching a sinner speak and listening to the speech of a sinner. That's all we have to work with on this planet. And we who belong to Christ, what are we but redeemed sinners? But we are still sinners. And those who are not redeemed, and this is what we have to keep in mind, those who are not redeemed in this world, they are simply what you and I once were. They're not the different ones. We are the ones who've been called out. They, they just remain to be what we once were. The most profligate among them might have been some of our former companions. And even still, many of them might be our close acquaintances and family members. The most profligate, the most open, rampant sinners... We might know them. If we've seen them out in public, they might say, Hey, how's it going? How you been? It's been a long time. We need to catch up sometime. And we say, well, I don't know if I want to catch up or not. But they might be even family members. That's all we got to deal with. That's all, that's all we have to work with on this planet. And God nowhere promises a society where sinful men are utterly absent on this side of heaven. When Christ returns in fiery judgment against sinners, we read in Revelation 19.18 that that group will be made up of kings, captains, mighty men, all men, both free and slave, both small and great. That is to say, when Christ returns in judgment, it will be upon all types and kinds of people all over the world. Why? Because... That's what makes up this world. That's the kind of people this world is made of. And there will always be both righteous and wicked until the judgment. Our Lord says very plainly in Matthew 13, let both grow together until the harvest. The wheat and the weeds, they grow together. That's just how it is. Also, Christians as citizens of this world are expected to live here in this world and even promote the good and welfare of the world in which we live. Peter says that we are to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. We're to live that way in our world. 
We are to pray, Paul says, for civil magistrates in order that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And our Lord said in Matthew 5, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, how are, how are we to be the salt of the earth if we're not in the earth? And why does that earth need to be salt, salted except that it is putrefied and wretched and rotting? You've got the nature of the Christians and you've got the nature of the world. That's the way things are. How can we be light in this world if we're hidden away from it? Well, that, that won't work. But why does this world need light except that it is in darkness? Again, the nature of the Christian and the nature of the world compiled in the purpose of redemption means that Christians are in the world and must be in the world for its good. That's God's design. If we sever all relations with the world, then we end all possibility of evangelizing the lost. And that's why our great high priest could even pray I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He could have prayed that. He could have prayed, Father, take them now. But he didn't. Because we are to stay in this world. So when Paul says not to associate with sexually immoral people, not meaning the sexually immoral of this world, we can deduce from that at least this, that Christians may have, we could even say ought to have, and indeed cannot avoid Regular social intercourse in this fallen world with known sinners. And we have to couple that with the fact that there are numerous texts that clearly warn us of the dangers of wicked company. Later on in this same epistle, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So you got that. Long-term habitual intercourse with the wicked will tear down the good morals or habits that you've developed. It will. And our tendency is deception. Paul has to say, do not be deceived. Because we, we tend to deceive ourselves and we think we're stronger than we really are. Oh, I can be around them. I can, I can go around those people. I can do the things that they do. It, it won't affect me. I'm strong. Paul says, no, you're not. You're not strong. Don't be deceived. That, that you will be corrupted. In his second epistle to the same church, 2 Corinthians 6.14, he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now here we have the picture of a yoke. What is a yoke? A yoke takes two animals and brings them together shoulder to shoulder, intimately, to work together step by step with the same goal and purpose and intention in mind in their work. He says, don't do that with unbelievers in, in that way. But we, we could also say that there are some tasks in this world that are actually to be shared by both the righteous 
and the wicked, we could say as, as we view ourselves citizens of the common kingdom. I, I, as a Christian, am allowed to use a shovel made by an unbeliever to dig a hole. I, I don't need to check it and, and ask, well, you know, what employee number made this shovel? Phone them, or, hey, are you a Christian? Oh, you say you're a Christian. Okay, what, what gospel do you believe? Okay, well, we're brothers. I guess I'll dig in. I don't have to do that. There, there are many things in the world that, that fit what we call that common kingdom preservation of society that where we do work together, but there are many things that are not in this category. And we have to steer clear of yoking together with people in, in that way. In Psalm 1, we know famously written, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So, while we must live in the world and we cannot leave the world, we must be careful that we do not conduct our lives according to the counsel and advice and, and worldview of the world. That we don't find our standing place, our, our common place amongst sinners. And that we don't sit or find a place of rest and comfort among scoffers. That's not our place and we've all heard the phrase, we have to be in the world, and yet we are not of the world. There are general associations that we cannot avoid. I don't need the cashier at the grocery store to make a, a, a credible profession of faith before she can swipe my bacon across the scanner. Just swipe it. As far as we need to go. Transaction concluded. But there are closer relationships with people in this world where we have to avoid uh, those who are openly wicked people. Closer, uh, and that again is implied in the context of this chapter in the church. The context of this association is important. We don't mix with the world in the same way that we mix in the church and vice versa. We don't mix in the church in the same way that we mix in the world. A lot of people try to do that. They want the church interactions to be basically like the world interactions. Just swipe the bacon and let me go on my way. That's not biblical. The church is required to go further. Whereas in the world, I'm not required to go further except that the Lord might open a door for evangelism or encouragement or, or help in some sort of uh, mercy ministry. But it's different. Christian fellowship, koinonia, is special. It implies intimate Nourishing, reciprocal benefits shared between Christians flowing from the grace of God at work in each of us. And that can't, be, that can't be had with the world. The world cannot provide that in the way that the Christian can. Can God use the wicked as a means of grace in some situations? Of course He can. But that's not the way that He does in the church. God doesn't have to... Speaking in human terms, in the world, it's almost as if God has to go out of His way to use the unbeliever in an unnatural way to bring about some goodness. In the church, God merely uses the Christian as what they are, the object of His grace and the, the avenue of His special care for one another in the church. So Paul's not saying here, that we need to end all of our associations with the worldly wicked, the world at large or even individual worldly wicked people. He's not saying that. 
But he's also not saying that we need to go ahead and maintain the same kind of closeness with the worldly wicked that we have in the church. He's not, he's not going to that other extreme. When he writes here about avoiding association with the sexually immoral and other open sinners, he, he, he's meaning ecclesiastical association, the way that we relate in the church. And by no means is he implying that our common kingdom relationships should come to an end as well. Now, what, what does this do except open up a million doors and opportunities and circumstances where we want to say, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? What about that? What about that? Well, there's no way that we can cover all that, but I will say this. When in doubt, look at our Jesus. Look how our Lord interacted with people in the world. Because we see the rule exemplified perfectly in our Lord's earthly ministry. If you are doing what Christ did, you're always okay. That's always the way to go. He clearly spent time with sinners. Now, the world likes to capitalize upon this, right? Jesus hung out with sinners. He clearly spent time with sinners, yet we never find Him condoning their sin or joining in their sin, ever. As a matter of fact, He used His time with sinners to reveal to them their need for a Savior, right? So, if, if, if you want to take that perspective, well, Jesus hung out with profligates and, and known sinners, and you want to copy his, his pattern, and I would say, by all means, if your goal is to reveal to them their need for a Savior, have at it all day long. Take a friend with you, probably. He spent time with sinners, and yet we also know that his closest friends and acquaintances were his disciples. In Luke 15, 2, the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. He was hated for his public relationships with known sinners. And yet, what did he himself say? Matthew 15, or 12, 50. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Yeah, I'm around these people. But who are the closest ones? Even his, his blood relatives were outside and he said... I'm amongst my nearest ones, my dearest ones. He reserved the nearest and dearest seats for the saints of God. And isn't that amazing? When we see that, does it not baffle our minds? The, the thousands of circumstances and questions that we have. What about this? Well, what about in this situation? Well, what about that person where I have to do this, but I don't really have to do that? All of that, all we can say, watch Christ. Do what He did. And it, it ends, it, it, it encompasses all of our study. Just do what He did. It's amazing. Are we not glad that we have a Savior in heaven who is not above sitting and eating with known sinners and yet who reserves a special relation for those who are His by the purchase of His blood? That's good news to us. Are we not glad, if we looked back, would we, would we not say that we're glad that He drew near to us, but He never condoned our sin. He came close. He never gave His stamp of approval to my sin. He called me out of my sin. And still to this day, when He draws near, I know He's near because I'm convicted of sin. He calls me out of my sin. And are we not glad that once called out of darkness into light, He brings us into the most intimate communion that a creature of the dust can have with Almighty God, 
closer than any relationship that he has with any other creature. He brings us into that. So look at Christ and follow his example. But it's important that we understand the rules for civil association. The difference, it could mean the difference between eternal life and eternal damnation for a sinner. That how we treat the world and those around us. Well, is that not what made the difference for us? Would we not say, if God had not drew near to me without condoning my sin, but calling me out of my sin, if God had not done that, I would be lost. Well, then how do we know that He might not be using us as a means to do that for others? You see, it's very important that we know how to relate to them in a way that's not going to encourage them in their sin, but is going to call them out of their sin. That's, it's important. So we need to think through that. The second thing that we see is what I'm calling rules for needful separation in verse 11. Rules for needful separation. While Paul never intended, and Scripture never commands, that we withdraw from society, it does give us principles which sometimes require us to separate from sinners in the context of the church. If you think about it, a lot of Christians have this backwards. And this might have been the fault of Corinth itself. We withdraw from the world, completely cut off from the world. We'll have sinners amongst our own congregation. That's fine. As long as they profess to be a Christian, that's fine because they're in here with us. Kind of like the parents who don't mind if their kids do drugs in their basement. Well, at least they're not out there. We know where they are. It's rid ridiculous. But, well, at least they're in here with us we're, and we're not a part of the world. No, that's worse. That's worse. Look at verse 11. He says, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Again, we have to remember that the, the concept of association applies to our church relations. It's written to you as a church. I'm writing to you, congregation, not to associate in a, what, what I, I like this word, I don't know if it's a real word, in a churchly way with these types of people. And we noted a few weeks ago that this kind of separation that Paul's prescribing requires a particular kind of sinner. It requires it. A particular kind of sinner. Anyone who bears the name of brother. We cannot act this way to people who do not bear the name of brother. What he's prescribing here. This person claims to be a fellow Christian. And in this time period there was not a Baptist church on every corner in Corinth. If a man was a Christian in Corinth, he was a member of Corinth Baptist Church, Corinth Reformed Baptist Church. He would have been a fellow church member. If he's bearing the name of brother, they're seeing him in the congregation. That's, and, and historically, that's how you knew they bore that name because they went into the waters of baptism and they gathered with the assembly. We are not to continue our churchly relations with those who profess to be one of us and yet whose lives are contrary to their profession. Our confession of faith states that churches should be made up of persons, quote, professing the faith of the gospel and obedience unto God by Christ according unto it, not destroying their own profession, by any errors, averting the foundation, that would be doctrinal errors, or unholiness of conversation, that would be 
lifestyle errors. Churches are made up of people who profess to believe the gospel, who profess to obey God, and you can't find anything in their doctrine that contradicts the gospel, and you can't find anything in their life that contradicts obedience to God. Now, I think it's very interesting that it doesn't say that they profess obedience unto God uh, by Christ and they do that perfectly. That's not what is required. It says you can't find any errors in, or, or unholiness in their conversation that contradicts that. You might find some things that you say, well, they need to work on this. They need to work on that. Well, I wouldn't do it that way. Well, so what? They wouldn't do it your way. That's not, that's not what is required. What do they profess? Does their doctrine line up with their profession? And are there any things in their lives that completely contradict that? If not, there you have an acceptable church member. Now, can we be fooled? Of course we can. But we're, not, we're never required to know these things perfectly, infallibly. They profess to obey God and their lives match that profession. Now, the case here is we have somebody who professes faith in the gospel. They profess to obey God verbally. I'm a Christian. I do what God teaches. But yet, when you look at his life, he doesn't do what God teaches. He has a glaring contradiction in his life. This type of lifestyle is a contradiction to the gospel. Rather than evangelizing, this person by his life actually devangelizes, if that's a, a word. This person by his life unpreaches the gospel. This person by his life, though he might confess one thing, when you put his contradictory life along with it, he actually is urging sinners to continue on the path of sin. Go on about your way. I have no good news for you. Just carry on as you wish. That's what I do. That's his message. This is an open contradiction. This type of person is, is who we're dealing with here. And these are the ones that the church has to separate from. Now notice the sins that are listed here. This is, I, I don't think it's meant to be comprehensive. But it does show that the discipline that's being described in this chapter, or prescribed in this chapter is not limited to a man married to a stepmother. A lot of times we think that. Like 1 Corinthians 5, that's only for open, like hard-to-believe sexual sins. Not, not so. Not so. We do have that reference to sexual immorality again, which includes all violations of the seventh commandment. All sexual sins, inside or outside of the bonds of marriage, which is to be between one man and one woman. So there's those sins. That's what was happening in Corinth. But then he also names greed or covetousness. This is defined as being excessively or immoderately desirous of acquiring more and more wealth. The, the greedy person or the covetous person is always looking out beyond what they have to what they want. I got to get more. I got to get more. I got to get more. Well, you have this. Yeah, but I got to get more. Which is a violation of the 10th commandment of God. He names an idolater. Now, when we hear idolater, we think, well, that's somebody that worships a false god. Not so. An idolater is a person who worships a deity by means of material representations or uh, 
inventions of man. Now, this would, again, be a violation of at least the second commandment, assuming that this person might be worshiping the one true God, just doing it by way of his own inventions. But many times it's a violation of the first commandment as well because the idolater is not worshiping the one true God. They're worshiping something else. And it doesn't have to be uh, an object that they say, this is my God, but it is an inordinate ascribing of worth and value in a life built around a certain thing, an idolater. Then we have a reviler. This is defined as one who attacks the reputation of another by slander or libel. So slander is speaking lies about someone else. A reviler is a person who speaks lies about somebody else in order to attack their reputation. Libel is the same thing, except libel is usually written or published. Slander. So writing or publishing lies that are meant to attack the reputation of another person, which is a lot more prevalent in our day of social media and and following the, the printing press and all of that. But this is a violation of the Ninth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Then we have the sin of the drunkard. One who habitually drinks alcohol to excess, usually to the point of intoxication. And we would also include under this today other intoxicating drugs. Not just alcohol, but other intoxicating drugs. This would be a violation of at least the first commandment. Because when people give themselves to intoxicating drugs, whether it be drink or other things, what what they're doing is they're giving themselves, their body and their mind, over to the service of something besides God. Very often they're seeking refuge or comfort in something besides God. My life is so miserable. These things are going this way. I just got to get away. I got to move out of reality. I got to get my mind off of these things. And whereas the scriptures say, then you need to run to God. God is to be that for you, that refuge. They say, I'll I'll take the bottle, I'll take the pill, I'll take whatever it might be. The drunkard. And then we have the swindler or extortioner. Most basically, this person is a thief, but it's not, not necessarily a bank robber, right? A swindler or extortioner is one who takes what is not due to them or more than what is their due. All undue exactions are extortion. This is really important for people who own their own business or work in a job where they get to set the pay for what they're doing. If you are exacting from people, taking from people more than what is due, more than what is right, and that's not always just this set standard that never changes, But if you have that habit, you are a swindler. You're extorting money from people, taking more than is is your due. It's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Now, if you think about these sins, they're, they're all sins that are or will eventually be easy to see in a person's life, easy to prove. They're observable sins which take hold and characterize a person's lifestyle and habits so that if it comes to this point of formal excommunication or discipline in the church, the whole congregation is able to see the evidence, hear witness to or testimonies about the evidence, and everybody is able to say, we agree this person is clearly committing this sin with no repentance. 
You see, that's, that's the kind of sins we're talking about here. This is not, well, I, I feel like she shouldn't have said it that way. Well, okay, get over it. We all feel like somebody should have said something differently at some point. That, that's not this. This is very serious. And it's this particular kind of sinner which the church is not to associate with in a churchly way. We're not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of these kinds of sins. And then he adds, not even to eat with such a one. That is, he's not to, we, we are not to enjoy normal, jovial, frivolous interactions with that person that would give that person or the outside world the idea that we are okay with their lifestyle, that everything is just fine and dandy, that there's no problem here. Now, this doesn't imply what many groups have done historically and, and still to today, shunning, like we just cut off all communication. I'm not talking to you. I'm not seeing you. If we're walking down the road and I see you coming, I'm on the other side of the road so that I can tell people later, you know, I didn't even walk on the same side of the road. as um, This is not that. This is the idea behind this eating a meal with someone is you, you're not to carry on with them to give them the impression that everything is kosher, that everything is fine and dandy. One commentator says, A man professing to be a Christian professes to renounce all these sins. If he does not act consistently with his profession, he is not to be recognized as a Christian. And that's what this type of associating would do. We, we, we break off associations that would lead that person to think that we still think they're a Christian or we recognize their profession. Their, their, their will many times ought to be ongoing associations and communications, but the, the basis of all of them is we do not recognize your profession. Are you ready to repent? Are you ready to return? We act as, as a church. We have to act like there is a problem because there is a problem. We can't go on as if there's not a problem. Thirdly, verses 12 and 13, we see rules for ecclesiastical adjudication, which is a fancy way of referring to the job of the church, ecclesiastical, to act upon the power given to them to adjudicate. And there are again rules for this. Notice what he says, 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Rule number one, a church can't communicate somebody who's not in the church. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? A particular church cannot excommunicate people who are not a part of its church, their church. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So he asks... Rhetorically, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Now, when we read it, we hear the question. Our minds should, after reading the chapter, our minds should be saying, yes. It's, it's an assertion. Church, he says, you are to judge those inside the church. The Christian is not allowed to say, well, only God can judge me or... or Statements like that. No, when you become a church member, you are you are uh, consenting to be judged by the congregation. You're saying, "I give myself over to be a part of the ongoing judgment and and uh, 
analyzation of this body. You are to judge those inside the church. The church body has the job of adjudication. That is, of hearing the evidence, of weighing the evidence, of having the trial, of announcing the verdict, of sentencing the the offender. That is the job of the church. It's adjudication. It's like court. And all of that is to be done publicly and formally by the church, not electronically. You can't just write a letter and say, hey, just so you know, you're out of the church. No, that that doesn't fly. Not by text, not by email, not even by phone call. The church does this as a body formally together so that there's clear agreement on the part of all as to what has happened. What about those outside the church? He says God judges those outside. In other words, God will deal with them. Now we might read that and say, well, so is, is, is he saying God doesn't judge people within the church? No, the answer is God does judge people within the church. He has a means of doing that, which is the church itself. He uses the church body to judge the church body. He doesn't use the church body to judge those outside the church. Remember what Christ said in Matthew 18. Verses 18 and 19, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. In other words, what the church does when it's done biblically, righteously, orderly in a proper way. And this is why it's so important that, you, that, that we understand how this is supposed to work and supposed to be carried out. When it's done properly, when the church does that, that is the judgment of God on that person. That is God's judgment. That that person cannot say, well, that's, what, that's just what you all think. No, that's what God thinks. Now, again, we're not infallible, and there are, even confessionally, there are avenues for a person to take if they think all of this stuff is, has been completely done wrongly by a church. But again, I'm, I'm assuming that it's been done rightly, biblically, orderly. God has pronounced that judgment. But it's not the final judgment. The church doesn't have the ability to say, you are, from this point on, cast off, reprobate with no hope. No, this is a temporal act used by God through the church to attempt to bring about a change in that person before the final judgment. So somebody has been excommunicated from a church. That doesn't mean they're going to hell. They may if there's no change. But And it is still also a temporal judgment executed by God. And He does the same thing in the world with worldly sinners. He can bring temporal judgments in the lives of unbelievers to, to bring them to Himself. So ultimately, yes, God judges all men. But at present, God administers temporal judgments through the church upon those who are within her ranks, those in the church. And therefore, when there is a sin of this caliber in the church, the church must purge the evil person from among you. And again, this is a command given to the church body as a whole, to act as a whole, to purify that which is within her borders. You have the power to do this, church. You have that power. We, as a congregation, 
have that power and it must be used. But it must be used properly. Because when you do these things, you're acting in the name of Jesus. It's not a light thing. It's not a small thing. Uh, I, I think it, it should be terrifying, scary, long, slow, prayerful process when this type of stuff has to take place. Because you're, you're basically saying, Jesus said to do this. He, he said this is your position right now. And that, that's a fearful thing. So then what are some, some things that we can glean from all of this besides what we've just seen, the obvious rules here? Number one, take note of the goodness of God that He has not required more of us than is practicable. Think about how, just how good God is. That He's not laid on us burdens too heavy to bear. He's not commanded us to go out of the world. He's not required us to section ourselves off from society. He does not expect us to create an exclusively Christian subculture where we have to come up with our own hospitals and our own dentist office and our own lumber yards and all of this stuff so that we can continue in the world. God never said that. We don't have to do that. He says, live in the world. He expects us to secure the borders of the church and to guard the door of the church. And He's given us clear instructions on how to do that. But He also allows us the safety of continuing to live in the common kingdom where even wicked men flourish. Think about how good God is. Many times, it is the flourishing of the wicked that God uses to provide for us. It's the idolatry and the covetousness and the extortion that happens all over the world, no doubt maybe in our own country more than many others, in the economic dealings and Wall Street, the things that keep our nation running. God uses that and has used things like that from the beginning of time to make sure that His people can get a cheeseburger and fries, and a drink, and can feed their families, and put socks on their kids' feet, and carry on throughout the world to ensure that there's always a kingdom of Christ in the world. God uses that. He never said, hey, you gotta, you got to separate out and, and do your own thing. You want to build a house? Don't you buy that wicked sinful lumber. You buy Christian lumber. He never said that. Because He's good. He's made it relatively simple and easy for us. Secondly, we're reminded here of God's desire for the present purity of the church in contrast to the eventual purity of the whole earth. God loves His church and He's going to have her purified now. He's not willing to wait. He's doing it right now. He's purifying His bride. Christ is currently and is always working to cleanse His bride. And so while the judgment of the wicked, for the most part, is something that God is willing to put off, until the final day. He, he's, he's, he says almost, in essence, I'll get to them. But right now, I want my church clean. What does that show us? That's where God's focus is. His church. He wants His church to be built. He wants His church to be cleansed. That's where His attention is. It, the church takes up His present and ongoing concerns. The church is not a parenthesis in the plan of God. The church is the plan of God. That's what He's doing in the world. And He gives us rules and prescriptions on how to do that. And then lastly, we're reminded here of God's desire 
to save the lost. God's desire to save the lost. See, how so? Where do we see that in what we've heard? Well, we see that in the fact that God is not willing that His saints be taken out of the world or that we retract into our own little private enclaves cut off from the world. Why has He left us here? Because He wants to save more. He wants us in the world. He wants His salt and His light in the world. He wants His gospel preached. He wants holiness put on display for the world. We go to Romans 10 and Paul asks, How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? And we could add, how shall they send preachers if they've sectioned themselves off from all of society and culture and they have no relationship to the world? How does that work? It doesn't. There has to be a church in the world to make disciples and send preachers into the world. God has designed the church as His mission agency in the earth until Christ returns. And so when all other agencies fail or die with their founder... The church is going to continue on in the world, though not of the world, preaching the gospel, making disciples, planting churches, because that's what God has ordained to happen. That's what God wants to happen. God is... One thing I love about God is that He is very clear on what He wants. It's pretty clear. If He wants us to do something, He'll just tell us. If He doesn't want us to do it, He just won't bring it up. Sometimes He'll tell us not to do it. How do we know this is what God wants to happen? Because it's what He's told us. This is what I'm doing. Don't go out of the world. Stay in the world. Proclaim the gospel. As a matter of fact, we we could almost hear God saying, you better not go out of the world. I sent my son into the world. Are you better than him that you need to retract? No. God wants to save sinners. And so He's left His church here for that purpose as a pillar and buttress of the truth. How else will anybody hear the truth if the church is not in the world? Aren't you glad that the church didn't go out of the world or that there was a church and a preacher when you came along? That there was no ecclesiastical dropping of the gavel the year before you were born that said, all right, that's it, all Christians, we have no more association with with the lost. How many of us would not be saved if that were the case? We're glad that God left His people in the world, that there was a church and there was a preacher, that the gospel was being proclaimed. And in that gladness, we ought to be glad in God. God is the one who did it. God orchestrated this to save sinners because that's what He does. But we also see that same truth in in that this disciplinary process, while it is aimed at bringing purity into the church, it's also aimed at bringing sinners to God. This is not meant to push people away. A lot, oftentimes we think, well, if we, push, if we remove people from the church, we'll push them away from God. Well, you're not, you're not more wise than God. We're not nicer than God. We're not more compassionate than God. God said, do this, and this is the way that I bring them to myself. He said that in verse 5. Deliver the man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Church discipline, done rightly, has the salvation of sinners in mind. God's mind and our minds. If if we can go about this process, if a church could go through this process, 
And it is not in their mind, sincerely, in their mind, in all of our actions, we desperately want this soul saved. If they can't say that, then they had better stop. Go back to prayerful consideration. Don't make another step forward. Do not move until you can say with, with unanimous hearts, the only reason we're going another step is because we want a soul saved. It's a long process. It's a grueling process. It's an awkward process. It's hard on everybody when a church has to do this. Why would God prescribe this to us? Why would God give us this work? Because God wants to save souls. When we retract from this work or withdraw from this work out of supposed kindness or not wanting to press the issue, what we're saying is, well, we think we're actually kinder than God. We're nicer than God. We want sinners to be saved more than God does. That's not true. God's desire is that we, that we might see sinners saved, that He would save sinners. So with that, let's close in prayer.